We're starting a new series tonight in 1 Corinthians. So it's 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you, What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Caiaphas, and still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that they were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word. A great God and Father, we thank and praise you for all the wonderful truths we've sung this evening. How good it is to know Jesus Christ. And so we pray for those of us who are Christians already, we'd learn more of that and be more delighted with our status as Christians, and if we're not there yet, that you'd help us understand why it is that it would be so good to be a follower of Jesus. We pray in his great name. Amen. Now, becoming a Christian is a very wonderful thing, and um, uh, if you've been a Christian for years and years and years, of course, it's easy to forget that, but becoming one is a very wonderful thing. I don't know if you um, read about Maurice Brown uh, earlier in the year, so um, he became a Christian. Uh, in the middle of this year. Now, back in 2005, Maurice Brown got into an argument with uh, someone in uh, a barber shop in Kennington, where I go, actually, so it's slightly interesting. Uh, he got into an argument with a guy, got a bit feisty. Anyway, a little later on, Maurice followed the guy home and shot him in the face, but did so slightly incognito, no evidence, so he just got away with it. He became a Christian earlier in 2015, this year, 2015. And one of the first things he did, well, about a month after being converted was hand himself into the police and say, I shot that guy. And uh, so he came to trial, and um, last month he was sentenced. Uh, The guy didn't die, but he was sentenced for 12 months, uh, grievous bodily harm. Is that right? Anyway, 12, 12, excuse me, sentenced for 12 years for the crime he committed. That's a radical decision, isn't it? But he got that. I'm a Christian now. It changes everything. And I'm willing to give up my liberty for Jesus because I need to do the right thing. I need to do what he would want me to do. I need to be on, I need to confess my sin and part of that is making right 
as far as I'm able, the mistakes of the past. He gets it. The career Christian is a very wonderful thing, and it changes you. God doesn't want to leave us unchanged. Now, sometimes people don't quite run that way. They want to be a Christian, become a Christian, but with the minimum amount of disturbance to their life. So, yes, I'm a Christian, but I want everything else to be the same. You can't really do that. Let me try to illustrate. Um, When you become parents for the first time, and that is not a distant prospect for one or two, you become parents for the first time, life changes it is just not the same as it was before. Now, you can try and live the same way as before, but it goes quite, it gets a bit awkward. So you can try and just go out as much as you did before, but you work out that someone needs to babysit, otherwise it's a crime, and uh, you get in trouble for that. Uh, you, you have to plan. Oh, you can go out and stay out as late as you did before, but someone's got to get up in the middle of the night. And when you have a child, you never sleep the same again. Not for years. And you think, well, it's all right, we'll cover at the week, recover at the weekend. But someone's still got to get up at six o'clock when the baby does. So you can try and live your life the same way as before the baby was born, but you just get exhausted and it doesn't really work. Well, you become a Christian, you can try and just bolt on Christianity to everything that was there before. And Well, I'll be a Christian, but I don't want anything else to change. I don't want any inconveniences in my life. And you can do that, but it is exhausting. And There comes a point where you realize this doesn't work. And if I'm going to live the Christian life, I need to live it. I'm changed. I'm different now. I need to live differently. Becoming a Christian is wonderful. But you can't claim to be a Christian without there being significant changes in your life. It just doesn't work. Now we're starting then in this letter, the first letter that we've got left that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And Paul writes this letter to a church that was seeking to be Christian, but with the minimum amount of disruption. Yeah, we'll be Christians, but we don't want great social disruption or theological disruption. We just want to be as we are, but Christians as much as we're able. Essentially, it's a worldly church. And as we work our way through the letter, they've got all sorts of problems. So chapters 1 to 4, there's, there's factions, there's fights between different groups within church. Uh, chapters 5 to 7, sexually, their behavior is appalling. Uh, chapters 8 to 10, they're just selfish and self-absorbed. It's all about me, 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 rather than caring for other people. Um, uh, chapters 12 to 14, really, it's just an obsession with, I'm more gifted than you, and showing off, and pride, dominating It's just all sorts of problems in this church. It is a grumpy teenager of a church that's rebelling in every direction. All sorts of issues going on here. And Paul is writing to them, to a people he loves, saying, you're being molded by the world, and you should be molded by Christ. You're just being squeezed into the mold of the world, when you should be molded by Christ. So here it is. Here's the, uh, here's the, these, will, these will keep coming out until I've actually used them to bake a cake. Our administrator says, if I actually bake a cake in, this, in the shape of a cross, she'll give me a bottle of wine. So there's an incentive. Um, but Paul said, don't be, this is the world, because it's round, and we know the world is round. Um, don't be molded by the world, okay? 
Be molded by Jesus. Don't be molded by the world. Um, sorry, that was how I was expecting that. Sorry. Be molded by Jesus. And that's a sort of dominant thought that's going on throughout this letter. Which way will you be molded? Who will mold you in how you relate to one another? In how you conduct your legal affairs, in how you conduct your sexual affairs, in the places that you visit, in how you use your gifts. Are you going to be molded by the world or are you going to be molded by Jesus? That's the big issue, essentially, in the book of Corinthians, or this first letter to the Corinthians. Now, to a bit of context, Corinth was a great city to live in if you're a young professional. Terrific city, because Corinth is rich, it's raunchy, and it's religious. That's a great combination in many ways. So you go to Corinth if you want to make it, because it's a wealthy trading port. You know, you've got trade coming in from um, both uh, sides in the peninsula. So it's very wealthy port. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All sorts of money to be made in Corinth. It's rich, it's raunchy. It's well known for its sexual behavior. To Corinthianize is a verb in the first century. To be sexually active, licentious. Uh, you've got a temple to Aphrodite, Diana, right at the heart of the city because you worship sex in Corinth. And it's religious. And alongside that, there are multiple, there's hundreds of different little temples of places you can go. It's a pick and mix religion. Anything, you know, I, I like to be religious, but I, a bit like this in a way that I don't have to change. I want to be a uh, 40-odd-year-old Chelsea-supporting um, sort of religious person. Okay, that's fine. There's a building for you. Okay, so, so it's not wildly different from our city. It's rich. It's raunchy. It's religious. You can find different spiritualities all over the place. Paul had founded this church uh, in AD 50-51, he'd spent 18 months there before moving on. And this letter is a letter he writes a year and a half later. And everything is not going quite right. We're really tonight in chapters 1 to 9, excuse me, verses 1 to 9, a little bit of the um, uh, one little application from 10 to the end. But verses 1 to 9 really will dominate what we'll look at. And really, Paul is wanting to say, look, you should be fundamentally shaped by Jesus. That's what should shape you, because you're Christians. So you should be shaped by who you are in Jesus. So in three particular ways, you're holy, you're rich, you're waiting. Okay? You're holy, you're rich, you're waiting. Those three things in Jesus should shape you. Uh, first, let me go to this. Verses two to three. You were called to be holy in Jesus. You're called to be holy in Jesus. Paul introduces himself. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Okay. Verses two to three. Look how he describes them. Well, first of all, just how much Jesus dominates verses one to nine. The name of Jesus appears in pretty much every verse. And verses 2 to 3, four times, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because you're all about being shaped by Jesus, or you should be. But look how he describes them, three little ways. To the church of God in Corinth, to those secondly sanctified in Christ Jesus, and thirdly called to be holy. You're those three things. You're the church of God, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus, you're called to be holy. Briefly look at them. You're the church of God, he says, to this church in Corinth. 
that Paul is going to spend the bulk of this letter telling them off, rebuking them for things that they've got wrong. But, he says, you are the church of God. He hasn't given up on you. He still loves you. You still belong to him. Despite the fact you're taking one another to court, you're visiting prostitutes, you know, you're horrible to one another, you're proud and arrogant. Despite all those things, you're the church of God. You belong to him. And he won't give up on you. The first time I saw my father cry, I think it was only, I've only seen it twice, but the first time was uh, at his father's funeral, my granddad. Uh, and I was young at the time, only five years old. And I, I observed and I knew enough of the dynamic. To, so, so, I mean, it's a terrible thing, isn't it, to say to your, to your dad on his father's funeral. But I said to him, Daddy, why are you crying? Grandpa wasn't very nice to you. Which I think was probably true. And he said, yes, he wasn't always very nice to me. But he was my daddy. And so I loved him. He was mine. You, know, you get that. And here Paul is saying, your behavior is appalling. But God says, you're my church. And I still love you. And I'm not giving up on you because you're mine. You belong to me. My church. The church of God. The church of God. Second thing, they're sanctified in Christ Jesus. Perfect tense. Something that took place when they became a Christian. Sometimes we use that language of ongoing uh, in the Christian life, or I'm being sanctified. My wife will occasionally say with a smile on her face, I think I was told to marry you in order that I would be sanctified. Um, but she says it with a smile, not for real. Uh, uh, but we use it sometimes, but primarily in the New Testament, when you become a Christian, you are sanctified. It's a one-off thing. Happens once for all. And the Old Testament background to that is just set apart. So in the temple, the Old Testament temple, people, instruments, candlewicks, snuffs, and plates and things were sanctified, set apart, not to be used for any other purpose. Or you might not have to think of it in these terms, in modern terms. A modern footballer, someone like Wayne Rooney, is sanctified to play for Manchester United. He has been purchased at considerable cost to play for Manchester United. And he doesn't play for any other teams, not national one, but he doesn't play for any other uh, Premier League teams because that would be inappropriate. Because he's sanctified, purchased from Manchester United. Now, the manager would pretty, be pretty annoyed when uh, a couple of days Wayne doesn't turn up for training. Where have you been, Wayne? Well, on Monday, I was just helping a mate down the building site. I was lugging bricks around. What? Yeah, and on Tuesday, I, I was helping out another mate. I was cycling around London as a bicycle courier, you know, hanging off the buses. And, you know. Don't do that. Don't do that. You're worth millions. You're the only striker we've got. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you get injured, we are completely stuffed. Don't do that. You are sanctified to play for this club. Don't do those things. Don't do those things. You don't need to do those things. You love playing football. Just do the stuff you love. You don't have to earn money on a building site or as a bicycle courier. Don't do that. You are sanctified for one person or one group. Manchester United. Paul is saying the Christians, that Christians are sanctified for Christ Jesus. You are bought at an enormous price, Jesus' blood, for him. 
to have the freedom of relating to Jesus, the freedom of sins forgiven, the freedom of being the person you were designed to be. You don't have to do other stuff. Don't do those other things. Don't go and visit those prostitutes. Don't fight with one another. Don't divide into factions. You've been sanctified. You don't want to do that anymore. You're the church of God. Still in verse 2. Whoa, motoring through. You're the church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus. And third little thing here, you're called to be holy. Okay, you've been sanctified, set apart. So now live distinctively. Live differently. That's what you've been called or chosen to be. And he'll spend much of this letter saying, you're not living how you're meant to be. Old-fashioned term. You are guilty of conduct unbecoming. It's a very old-fashioned term, isn't it? You only ever hear it really in the military now. You can still be sacked. Well, I guess you can in any firm, but the military is the only one who uses it for conduct unbecoming. So I don't know if you read a little while ago, a U.S. general, Mike Carey. Mike Carey uh, was responsible, the senior general, responsible for all of the U.S.'s nuclear weapons. That's quite an important job. I mean, he doesn't have the codes, that's the president, but anyway. But Mike Carey, he's the oversight of all the whole nuclear program. One day, on one, he'd been on a business trip, flying back through Zurich Airport in the business lounge, he got completely blotto and went around telling everyone, I'm in charge of all the nuclear weapons. I'm the man who controls all the nuclear weapons. What a job. I'm so important. Boom. <laughs> I was completely blotto. Boom. <laughs> Don't annoy me. I'll nuke you. Just, you know. He didn't retain his job for too long after that. It's not a job you sort of whacka whacka. Let me tell you my favorite nuclear disaster jokes. You don't joke about that. He was deemed guilty of conduct unbecoming an officer. Sacked. I think the only other time I can remember it, of, remember it being used recently was uh, Prince Harry. Remember those photos in Las Vegas? He was playing pool. Probably wasn't wearing what he should have been when he was wearing, uh, playing pool. And uh, the newspapers were full. Guilty of conduct unbecoming both an officer and a senior member of the royal family. Senior? Anyway, a member of the royal family. Conduct unbecoming. You don't do that. You don't do that if you're a prince of the realm and everyone's going to find out about it. You don't joke and tell everyone, oh, I'm in charge of all your nuclear weapons. You don't do that. It's just inappropriate. It's conduct unbecoming. And Paul is saying, you're called to be holy. And at the moment, it's just conduct unbecoming. It's just wrong. Live for the Lord. Christians are God's people. Sanctified, set apart for him. And called, chosen, to live lives of holiness. That's who you are. That's what should define you. You're holy. Called to be holy. Uh, Second thing. Let's pick up a bit of pace. Second thing. You've been enriched. By the grace of Jesus, so you're holy. You're rich is the second thing. Uh, verses 4 to 6. Now these verses, Paul is giving thanks for the Corinthians, but really it's God's achievements that are stressed. So let's read it. Verse 4. I always thank God, his achievements, for you, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him... You've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking, in all your knowledge. 
because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you when you became Christians, that is. So really, it's all about what Jesus and what God has done for them. You're rich because of what you've been given. The child on Christmas Day who opens 10 presents doesn't say, I am brilliant. No, he says, I've been given a lot. Well, mm, uh, depends how old the child is. But he's, Paul is saying, you've been given. When he gets to the end of this section, chapter 4, he'll put it very bluntly in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you have not been given? Now, the Corinthians are phenomenally talented, gifted church. And they were saying, look at us. We are brilliantly gifted as a church. And within the church, they were saying, we are gifted, aren't we? Yes, we are gifted. And, I, and personally, I'm more gifted than you. Well, let's have a fight about that. That's how it was going. And Paul says, but hold on. Just think of what that word means. Gifted. It's something you've been given. Did you read earlier this year? I read lots earlier this year. I have time to read the newspaper. Did you read earlier this year? Thomas Gilbert. Thomas Gilbert was a 30-year-old American playboy who pulled a gun and shot his dad a few months ago. The reason being was this. Uh, dad had raised him uh, with his wife, and um, uh, uh, Thomas Gilbert's dad is a multi-multi-millionaire, uh, Manhattanite, and so had sent him to the, you know, the best schools, a, a primary school at $50,000 a year, secondary school at $80,000 a year, uh, um, sent him off to Princeton University, where uh, the son, Thomas, spent seven years, because he was a bit slack and had to repeat a few years, uh, and then he emerged from university and had no job. But it's all right, because daddy paid the rent, and daddy gave him uh, £3,000 uh, a month to, uh, to spend and to play with. Now, unsurprisingly, Thomas Gilbert was a bit of a brat. So age 30, multimillionaire, no money worries, no job, always had a very attractive woman on his arm, was a party animal. And his dad reached a point of being a bit, un- bit unimpressed with this and said, I'm cutting your allowance. And Thomas was very unhappy and shot his dad. So it's two shooting illustrations. It's a bit rough, isn't it, in one night? Anyway, he shot his dad. Because all of a sudden, he was nothing. Thomas Gilbert, all that you are has been given to you. You have an extraordinary life. Yes, you have a lot of fun. You have phenomenal buying power. You have a magnificent Manhattan apartment. Well done, you. It's all been given. It could all be taken. What do you have that you've not been given? Now, that is a question that God could ask of everyone in this room. But I've earned it. But I've worked hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, those things are true. But your status in life, your success in life, flow out of your education in life, flow out of often your family background and its stability and affluence. What do you have that you've not been given? Paul says to the Corinthians, yeah, yeah, you're rich. Oh, you're very rich. But don't be arrogant. Because you've been given it. Given it by the grace of Jesus. Now he'll go on to say more of that. But here the striking thing is actually he gives thanks for them. He gives thanks for them. 
In particular, he highlights their speaking and their knowledge. Now, we'll see in the rest of the letter, it's their speaking and their knowledge which cause all sorts of problems. And yet still, he gives thanks for these gifts that he's got. It is amazing, even though those are the gifts that have caused division. So two little things to take away at this point, a major and a minor. The major one is, all your gifts have been given to you by Jesus. Give thanks for them. Just give thanks for them. So your worldly talents, spiritual gifts, they've all been given by Jesus. Don't be proud. Praise him. Praise him. The minor thing here, uh, I think what struck me was, they are a pretty ropey church. And they're very ungrateful to Paul and his ministry amongst them. But he doesn't give up on them. He still keeps on loving them. He's patient. He's not dismissive. And so for me, and maybe for you, to be like Paul, you probably want to think of the person at church you find most annoying. And give thanks to God for their gifts. And be patient with them. Pray that they change. Please will they change. Please will they change. Please will they change. But also, Lord, I give thanks for them and the gifts they've got. Yeah, they use them in a really annoying fashion. They're very showy, very proud, very arrogant. Work on that, will you? Quickly, please. If you would. But I give thanks for them. He's not, he doesn't give up. It's very, there's always more grace. God is not finished with you yet. God was not finished with the Corinthians yet. There's always more grace. I think that's very lovely. Okay, so you're called to be holy in Jesus. You've been enriched by the grace of Jesus. Third and last. You're waiting for his return. You're waiting for the return of Jesus, verses 7 to 9. Therefore, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now, it may be that Paul is just sort of hinting at this point, look, this world is not all there is. You're living just for this world and the pleasures of this world. There, there is a life to come. Don't forget that. He may well be hinting in that direction. But the bulk of what he wants to say is, say is verses 8 and 9. He, God the Father, will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. The Lord will not let you go. He will not cut off your allowance like Thomas Gilbert was cut off. He won't sack you for conduct unbecoming like a U.S. general. He'll keep you to the end. Ah, because the Lord is a loving father, he may discipline you. He may allow life to go a little wrong at times to nudge you back onto a a way of holiness. He may well do that to nudge you back onto a path that's healthier for you. He may well do that, but he'll keep you. He'll never sack you, never cut you off. He will present you blameless. Again, it's all about his work. He'll do it on Jesus' day. It's very wonderful. Look, Paul begins this letter to the Corinthians and says, look, the most important thing about you, if you're a Christian, is that you belong to Jesus, which means you're holy, means you're rich, means you'll be kept, you're looking forward to that final day. Those things, 
Those, those are the things that have got to shape you into this sort of mold. Don't, you don't have to physically look you, but you know what I mean. Those are the things that are going to shape you. That's what matters. The rest, the rest is detail. Briefly, if those things shape you, given that those things are true, that you're holy, you're rich, you're waiting, one brief comment he makes here, which is just to, you know, where we go to in the next few weeks. So don't be divisive which is 10 to 17. Stop your little arguments. Don't be divisive. Briefly look ahead. What, chapter 1, verse 10 to chapter 4, 17 is the, is this the same issue. Don't be divisive. There's lots of different things you'll say, but that's the big idea. 1, 10, 4, 17. Don't be divisive. Let me read it. Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. Will you please come together? It's literally a, it's a medical term. Will you please be reset like a bone and knitted together? What's the problem? Verse 11. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, oh, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Oh, good job there's no more. Um, <laughs> We'll be in trouble. Now, what's the issue? It's not doctrinal division. Paul was saying in chapter 5, sometimes you have to divide from people. You know, what did Jesus do upon the cross? Classically, evangelical churches will say he died as a substitute for our sin, taking God's wrath upon himself. And liberal churches will say it's a nice example. That's a massive gulf of a difference and Paul would say, you want to divide on that, actually. Here, it's just personalities. It's not a doctrinal difference. It's just personalities or style. We're told in Acts chapter 18, Apollos spoke vigorously and boldly. Chapter 2, we're told that Paul spoke feebly, sort of tremblingly. So it may be that some just different, like, different styles. I like it when the preacher jumps up and down and does roly-polies. I like it when he grips the lectern and never moves. Well, who cares? Who cares about those sort of things? In Corinth, Apollos seemed to have more Facebook followers than Peter and Paul, and so you get divisions. But it's just a personality. There is no problem between the leaders. In chapter 16, Paul says, yeah, I've written to Apollos too, and said, but Apollos, it'd be great if you go to the church in Corinth. The leaders have no problem. They get on fine, but some of their followers, now that's very common. I think, particularly in a, a sort of small global village, you do get the comments, of course, my favorite preacher is John Piper, my favorite preacher is Tim Keller, he never does anything, my favorite preacher is Paul Roberts, or whatever it may be, and whoever you follow becomes the test of orthodoxy, well, that's not true because Piper says, well, what does the Bible say? And you put all those men in a room together and they'd say, will you stop it and focus on Jesus? Will you just stop it? It's very silly. Or even just in, domestically in the UK, you hear sometimes, have you heard, you know, whatever it may be, uh, Matt Fuller and Richard Coke disagree on this issue. Ooh. <laughs> and you think, what? Actually, they're very good friends. Don't, you know, have you heard, whatever it may be, William Taylor and, uh, I don't know, Sandy Miller have had a fight over, blah, blah, blah. Well, well, shut up, who cares? Personally, the, the two can sit down and have a cup of tea or a glass of wine. It's fine. 
But often the sort of followers make a big fuss about it. It's very silly how often that sort of thing can take place. Paul says you're dividing over personalities. Verse 13, is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No. I can't remember who I baptized. Maybe you. Maybe him. Was there someone else? Oh, I can't remember. I'm getting old. It doesn't matter. The point is, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What matters? Focus upon the cross of Christ. That's what needs to shape us. If you focus upon different human personalities, that will divide. If you focus upon Christ and the word of the cross, that'll bring people together. So do that, he says. Oh, look, here's the question as uh, we begin looking at this letter of 1 Corinthians. Who will you be shaped by? Which mold are you going to conform to? The world, which is rumbling on the floor, uh, or the cross of Christ? Will you be molded by the world? Will you be molded by Jesus? That's the question. In Jesus, you're holy, you're rich, you're waiting for Jesus to return and take you to glory. And being molded to him is who you're meant to be. There is freedom, there is joy. Oh yeah, there's sacrifice and oh, there's bumps and trials. But if you're molded to the world, which world? Your parents, your buddies, your colleagues? Oh, it'll vary. You'll constantly be shifting and from one morphing to one. Oh. Be molded by Jesus. If you're a Christian, be shaped by Jesus. He's given you so much. He's done so much for you. He's so wonderful. Become like him. Then you want to argue and fight and divide. You're holy. You're rich. You're looking forward. Let those things shape your life. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know well our hearts. And as we begin to explore uh, the truths of your word in 1 Corinthians, would you help us see? Would you help us be honest with ourselves? Would we openly talk with one another where we're being molded, not by Jesus, if we're Christians, but we're being molded by the world? Would you help us see that? And be honest, confess that to one another. Let us help one another so we know the joy and the freedom of becoming more like Jesus, becoming the people you made us to be, for our good, for our happiness, for our contentment and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.